if you would now, to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. I want to go right into our text tonight. Uh, We've got a rather lengthy portion of Scripture to read that will show us the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon, which is the religion of the Antichrist during the first half of the tribulation period. If you'd stand with me, let's just read these verses together. Uh, Revelation 17, beginning at verse number 7. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman, and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet to come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful." And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled." And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have gathered here together and to look into your word. Pray, Lord, you give us understanding of the scriptures and just open our hearts to what you'd have us to know tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight, after a a very long study of the ramp-up of religion during the first part of the reign of the Antichrist, we're going to talk about how that once he has reached his objective of uniting all of the world, uh, governments of the world into one world government, that he will dismantle the religious system that helped bring him into power. The religious part of the Antichrist kingdom is ecclesiastical Babylon. And this is a worldwide church that is able to do for the Antichrist what he was, would never be able to do on his own. And that is to unite a politically divided world, a culturally divided world, an ethnically divided world. And he can bring all of these people together because they all have one thing in common. And that is that all people are religious. There is a spiritual part of man that is virtually unexplained by those who believe in evolution because no matter where you go in the world, whether you go to the most civilized of people or whether you were to go to the most barbaric of people, they all have this one thing in common that they believe in God. Now, they don't understand who the true God is. They don't naturally know who he is, but they do know that there is a maker. They do know that. They know that there's somebody bigger than you and me. 
Well, they don't rightly interpret him as the one true God of heaven. As Paul said, that what man does is he turns God into an image, like creeping things, four-footed beasts, all sorts of things like that. And as we've learned as we've gone through this study of ecclesiastical Babylon, that men are prone to create God in an image like unto corruptible man. Paul also said that. But despite the different gods that people worship, we all have this one thing in common, and that is that we are more than just physically human. We are also spiritual. And the problem is that all of us, even though we are spiritual, we are all spiritually wicked. Spiritual wickedness is what caused the destruction of the world by when God destroyed it with the flood. Nearly all of the human race was destroyed because of wickedness. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, the scripture says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. As we know, there was only one family that was saved from the flood. God instructed Noah to build an ark. And so for 120 years while he was building that ark, Noah preached. But all the time that he preached, there was not one person who ever turned and repented of his sin. And so God had Noah and his family go into the ark. And then the world was destroyed by the flood. And then after Noah departed from the ark, it was just him and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife. And God started everything over with those eight people. Eight people started the whole thing over again. But the problem with that is they were sinners. And the children that were born to them were also sinners. So that we find within two generations after the flood, the world had become exceedingly wicked one more time. And this is when Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah, decided to proclaim himself a king. And so he built this tower of Babel, and he began a kingdom called Babel. And a Babel, Babylon, I should say. And this, this kingdom that he built was an idolatrous kingdom. Uh, there was one thing that interestingly united them, and that was religion. That's the thing that kept them together, that brought them together and kept them together. And all of the false worship that has come since that time has come from this kingdom of Babylon. It all comes from there. That's the mother of it all. uh, Mythology started with that. The Egyptian gods, the Assyrian gods, the Babylonian gods, Persian gods, Greek gods, Roman gods. All of it started with Nimrod's original foray, you might say, into idolatry. And those peoples that I just mentioned were incidentally kingdoms that that ruled the civilized world up until the time of John and those are the pieces that are going to be put back together by the Antichrist in a revived Roman Empire. Each successive empire throughout history has carried forward that idolatrous system of Nimrod so it continues and continues and continues and so when the Antichrist, Antichrist comes to power it's not going to be any different. We studied at length verse number 5, which gives us the connection between the Antichrist and those ancient religions. It says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The forehead that bears that inscription is ecclesiastical Babylon. And if you look at verse number 18, the angel explains to John, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. 
And between verses 7 and 18 is the explanation of how and why Mystery Babylon is destroyed. So this religious system that helped to bring the Antichrist into power and his cohorts into power is destroyed because all that the whore ever was, all this religious system ever was, was a vehicle to get power. So each fed off the other until power was gained. And then the woman becomes so hated, her control is so hated, that that they'll scorn her. The kings of the earth that join in with the Antichrist will throw off her yoke and then they will grind her to pieces. Now since the Antichrist, uh, his kingdom begins as a revival of the old Roman Empire, what do you think that his religion would be like? What religion would he have? Well, he starts it all back up again with the religion that the Roman Empire ended with. And the last religion of the old Roman Empire was apostate Christianity. And it actually took its name from the Roman Empire. And we know it as Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church. So this was the unification of the pagan system of Rome, that old religion of ancient Babylon with schismatic churches that had perverted the gospel of Christ. And so you put pagan Rome with apostate Christianity and you get Christianized paganism. And Christianized paganism became Rome's religion so that when the old empire fell, when the Roman empire fell, what was left of it, or the thing that is left, is the old religious system. So the Roman Catholic Church survives today. Now you'll notice in verse number 6, the last part of it says, And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And as we discussed last time, that does not mean that John was euphoric about what he saw, but he was stunned at this. I mean, he he saw something that he could not believe, his his eyes. He just couldn't believe what he saw. Here the gospel of Christ had been so grossly perverted... John knew nothing at all about Roman Catholicism. It didn't exist in his time. It was still 300 years away. So he knew nothing of what the Roman Catholics claim today, that Peter was, or the Pope is the vicar of Christ, and that his good friend Peter, John's good friend Peter, was the Pope of a Roman Catholic church. Well, he would never imagine such a thing. Rome was still 300 years away. And so John is here looking into the future, and, and he's looking up to the time of the Antichrist, and it was unbelievable to him that in that interval of time, that the name Christian had been attached to this idolatrous monstrosity that had actually sucked up all the religions of the world and then had become its head. So John is perplexed by that. And so in verse number 7, the angel begins to explain how that perversion was perpetuated and how that God would destroy it. And we've been talking about that, that rise of the ecclesiastical system, how it's got its start, that's in the first six verses. And now the angel intends to explain how God is going to destroy it. In verse 1, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. The rise of ecclesiastical Babylon is centuries old. It's an a progression that's 4,500 years old now. And when it's destroyed, I mean, it took all that time to build it up, but when it's destroyed, it will be comparatively in an instant. It kind of reminds me, I was driving home from church uh, one day, I, I can't remember how long ago this was, but I was driving down Commerce, and I looked over to the right side, and where this huge building, Yardbirds, once stood, there was nothing there but a concrete slab. 
I hadn't even noticed this, but, but it was there one day and it was gone the next. Now, I, I've, I've been around construction enough to know that it took a long time to build that building, probably at least a year maybe uh, or longer to build that building over there. And in just a very, very, very short time, that building was gone and there wasn't a nail left. All you have over there now is a concrete slab. And this is the way it's going to be with Ecclesiastical Babylon. It took a long, long time to build it up, but that shows you how quickly, this is going to show you how quickly that all the plans and schemes, everything that Satan has laid down for so many years can be vaporized just like that when God gives the word. Well, we're going to get to that now. It took six messages to build it up, and it's going to take much less for us to tear it down. So we're going to skip around these verses in chapter 17 a little bit to try to put the whole picture together and I'll do this in two messages and we'll talk about uh, three different areas and I'll cover those as I said in the course of two messages that'll help us to understand what takes place in the rest of this chapter now number one that we want to talk about what we're going to deal with tonight is the description of the alliance verse number seven and the angel said unto me wherefore didst thou marvel I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which had the seven horns or seven heads and ten horns. So the alliance is this uh, woman, which is the apostate church, with the beast that carries her. And this is the beast described as having seven heads and ten horns. So the first thing that we would notice about this alliance is that it is infused with religion. And that's what we've been discussing for six weeks now. Religion is the glue that holds all of these fiercely independent nations of the world together. You know, I think it's interesting as we look at the war that's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq, that that's happening in a part of the world that has been at each other's throats for centuries. I mean, there's always something going on over there. Um, Within those countries, there are these fiercely competitive tribes so that you really don't have any nationalism there like we think of. I was talking to Eric Hill when he first came back from Afghanistan and he told me that those people are not fighting to preserve their country like we think of protecting America. I mean, there aren't any patriotic veins that are running through their bodies. These are backward barbaric tribes and they can't get along with the guy over the hill, much less somebody who's going to rule them from a, from a capital of the, of the nation somewhere. But they are united in one thing. They hate Americans. And they have a religion that with all of its factions is still strong enough. It has enough fortitude to cement them together against what they call the great Satan. And the great Satan is the freedoms that we have as Americans and our Western culture. And that's the picture that we have with the Antichrist. When he comes to power, apostate Christianity is at the helm. And it has this ability that it can draw all of these... Uh, different religions together, compromising any doctrine that they need to compromise. That brings the masses together. And so the Antichrist has his formula for getting people together. As I mentioned before, the apostate church has an insatiable thirst for power. And Roman Catholicism believes that it has the right to conquer the world. And so with wars and torture and imprisonment and and with death, they've used all of those things to try to bring people under their power, to get them to knuckle to under their uh, in submission. So you have this symbiotic, symbiotic relationship that exists between the Antichrist and this apostate church, but as they're together for this first three and a half years of the tribu- tribulation, they're looking at each other with a jaundiced eye. 
the, the apostate church cannot get the power that it wants without the Antichrist. And the Antichrist can't get all the power that he wants without the apostate church. And so when it is finally united, when all of that comes together, when the nations of the world are in one government, when that happens, then these kings are going to turn against ecclesiastical Babylon. They'll, they'll throw off the yoke, as I mentioned a minute ago. They won't stand her any longer. And we're going to get to that next week. So the quest for world power then has its first component, which is religion. Religion is what gets the ball rolling. Now, even, even now... Catholicism is working for the unification of all religions. When I was preaching on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, I was talking about appalling preachers. And at that time, I mentioned to you Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa said that her charities that she had there in India uh, were not for the purpose, or they didn't try to do anything like, like converting people to Christianity. Mother Teresa's idea was that it doesn't matter what you are. You can be a Hindu, you can be a Buddhist. As long as you seek that one way and you stick to that and you're faithful to that, you're sincere about it, that's all that matters. You'll be able to go to heaven. There's a popular monk by the name of uh, Catholic, or a Catholic monk by the name of Thomas Merton, who's a mystic. And he was speaking in Calcutta a few years ago, and he said, oh, he was speaking actually to a huge ecumenical gathering of all these different kinds of religions. And here's what this Catholic monk said. He said, my dear brothers, we are already one but we imagine we are not. And what we have to discover is our original unity. And that's the same attitude that's been displayed in the popes of Rome, especially lately, a few years ago, with John Paul II. And then when the current pope came into, was elected, and uh, he promised, one of the things he did promise was that he would strengthen the relationship between Christianity, Muslims, and Jews. So if you look at not just the Roman Catholic Church, but you look at evangelicalism today, you see all that, well, you see the very same thing in a little bit different way. The end result is still the same. It, it happens in a different way, but it comes out the same way. Billy Graham has no problem with the Pope, and neither should he, when he said that there are people that have never even heard of Jesus Christ. They come from all faiths, and they're all going to be in heaven with us. That was his belief. So Eastern mystics and and Muslims and Jews, it doesn't matter. They'll all fit very nicely under this umbrella of non-Christian Christianity. So that's the first of the alliance. It's infused with religion. Now, secondly, the alliance is dominated by one ruler. Now, it'll be helpful for us now to understand that when the Bible refers to the beast, that sometimes it's talking about the Antichrist empire, and sometimes it's speaking of the man himself. And we'll see that as we go through this chapter. In verse number 7, the beast has seven heads and ten horns. That speaks of the empire. In verse number 11, the beast is an individual, and we'll see that a little bit later. In verse 8, they're both together. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. I think it's impossible for us to nail down precisely exactly what's going on here. But the beast that thou sawest was is referring back to chapter 13. I want you to go back there for just a minute, and you'll see this. The reference is from Revelation chapter 13, verse number 1. The beast that was, or the beast that John saw. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, 
having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads heads the name of blasphemy. Now there, uh, when uh, I might have referenced that wrong just a moment ago, the, John saw the beast that was. I think I said that, and that's this beast here in, in the thirteenth chapter, who's the Antichrist. Now keep your finger right there in chapter thirteen for a minute, because this is the very same description that we see in chapter seventeen. The the beast has seven heads and ten horns. But we notice in verse number eight in chapter seventeen, it says the beast is not. So what does that mean? Well, that is most likely a reference to a miraculous or seemingly miraculous resurrection that the Antichrist fakes. Now, if you go back to chapter 13 again in verse number 3, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So something happens here to this man who is the Antichrist. Uh, He fakes his death. He, He appears that he died but then he comes back to life. And that's how Satan rather mimics the resurrection of Christ. I mean, this is one of the things that the Antichrist is doing here. He's the counterpart of Christ, remember. That's why he's called the Antichrist. And so Satan loves to mimic Christianity. And so there will be a fake resurrection. And in uh, chapter 13, he sa- it says that he amazes this, the world with this deceptive trick. Everybody's taken in, so they begin to worship him as God. And we go back to chapter 17, verse number 8. The same scene is right here before us. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So here is a miracle that is mystifying, and it's going to fool everybody except God's elect. Now, we're not going to go much back into that again. We looked at this several months ago when we studied Revelation 13 verse 8 and we saw there how that names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world and these are the elect of God and you can't get much plainer than that the same thing is seen in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 when it's referring to the very same time period and then Jesus refers to this time period as well and he says in Matthew 24 24 for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible they shall deceive the very elect and we praise God that the elect cannot be deceived they are God's people. Their names have been written down from before the foundation of the world. So that means they will be in heaven. It means that God's intent is that they would be in heaven. And it also means they will be saved in time so they can go to heaven. So God is not busy erasing names out of the book of life like many people think. And he doesn't write your name down when you get saved. Your name was already there before the foundation of the world. Now if you need a refresher on that part to go back and pick up the sermon from chapter 13, verse number 8, because we prove there that election is a Bible doctrine, despite the protest of people who hate the doctrine so much. Well, we also notice in verse number 8 that the beast ascends from the bottomless pit. And here we have symbolic language that means that his empire, that he and his empire are hellish. This is a demonic empire that's powered by Satan. Some believe that this means that the Antichrist is a person that died and then he went to hell and then he was resurrected out of hell. But the Bible never says that a person can escape from hell. So he must be using symbolic language here. He must be talking about the empowerment of Satan. 
And then I said, you know, when you're looking at this, you're, you're looking at sometimes at a mixture between uh, the Antichrist himself as an individual and whether the Bible is talking about his kingdom. And so we can look at this as well, that it could be talking about the empire itself. The Roman Empire ceased to exist, but it will be resurrected in a new form. So whichever way that you want to look at it, the Antichrist and the empire are intertwined so that one, what, what applies to one also applies to the other. Now let's go back to verse 11 for just a minute, and, and we'll have to come back here and tie everything together. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. Now that seems to be very confusing language there. But there are seven heads that are on this beast and they're representative of seven kings and seven kingdoms. And I'm going to explain that part just a little bit later. But I want you to notice here that the Antichrist comes out of the seventh kingdom and he takes control. This is what we're talking about right here at the midpoint of the tribulation. When ecclesiastical Babylon is destroyed, then the Antichrist comes out and then he becomes the dominant figure. And that's the point where he actually becomes supercharged, you might say, by Satan. Now at first, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Satan is working on him. The powers of darkness are working there, demonic spirits and so forth. But you could sort of look at this like they're influencing from the outside. But it appears that at the midpoint of the tribulation, when ecclesiastical Babylon is destroyed, that at that point, Satan actually enters into the Antichrist. And he gives, them, gives him these superpowers, you might say. I mean, powers like an evil angel would have. And that is what convinces people to follow him. So all of the world is sucked into that, and they begin to worship him as their god. Now, we're going to drop back here a little bit to see the third part of the alliance. First, we have the alliance that is infused with a religious system. It's dominated by one person who is the Antichrist who uses that system to climb up and gain power. But there's also a third part. And the third part is what actually crushes the religious system and brings it down. And this part of the alliance is incorporated with many kingdoms. Verse 9, And here is the mind which hath wisdom... The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Now, we notice there first that in Scripture, mountains are sometimes emblematic of kingdoms. In fact, God uses this term mountain to describe the millennial kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, it says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. That holy mountain means the millennial kingdom of Christ. So the angel says, The seven heads are seven mountains. And in verse number 10 says, There are seven kings. So the mountains are emblematic of the kingdoms, and you have the seven kings. Well, some people say that the Mountains here are the seven hills on which Rome sits. And throughout history, Rome has been known as the city that was built on seven hills. And you may remember when we talked about this before, that I said that could be the interpretation. This could be the city of Rome. Because after all, we're talking about a revived Roman Empire. But there's also good evidence, I think, in Scripture that the city of Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon, will be rebuilt. And both of those are very good interpretations, I think. I think they're equally valid interpretations. So we might, you might hear me switching between the two. 
And that's because I don't think the overall interpretation suffers if you take either, either side of that. But the angel goes on and he speaks of seven kings. And we notice here that the description puts us into an historical context. Five are fallen. Five kings or kingdoms have fallen. And he says one is, that means one is right now. That would be in the time of John. And the other is yet to come. So there is this kingdom that has not yet come yet. That is at the time of John. So what's that referring to? Well, here's why you have to keep coming back to our study of Revelation. Because if you miss something, you can get very confused by all of this. So we go back to chapter 13 once again. So we'll go back there if you would. And we covered this in detail when we were looking at chapter 13. So I'm going to be brief with it tonight. But if you look at verses 1 and 2, Revelation 13 verse 1 And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. The different animals that are in in those verses... Um, or in this vision, refer to kingdoms. And if you remember, we got that out of the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, there's this explanation of a vision that Daniel Daniel saw. And if you wanted, again, a detailed explanation of all that, you go back to sermon number 44 in this series, and it'll explain all that to you. Daniel didn't mention all of the animals that we find in Revelation, and that's because he begins with the kingdom that he was in right then. He was in the Babylonian kingdom. So the lion here is Babylon. The bear is the next kingdom that would come, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And the leopard is the Grecian Empire. And the kingdom that was in power when John was alive was the Roman Empire. And if you read this in the book of Daniel, that empire is represented as the strongest of all the animals. This was an animal that had teeth of iron. So we go back to Revelation 17 again, and the angel says, five kingdoms have fallen. So the five previous world empires that had fallen, that he's speaking of, are the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian, and the Greeks. So the Grecian Empire. So there's five empires that have fallen. Then he says one is. And again, that's the empire that then was when John was living, which is the Roman Empire. Then it says, and the other is yet to come. That's the subject we have under discussion. It's a revived Roman Empire, and it has this apostate religion incorporated into it with all the many different nations of the world. So all the pieces of this are gathered up once again. All of the empires, all their religion is incorporated into one world empire. Verse number 10 says... Again, uh, also says this, when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And that means that the Antichrist is only going to be here for a short time. These other empires lasted for years and years and years and years. But when the Antichrist comes to power, he only has three and a half years. That's all that he has. And that's the time that he's going to make himself the God of this world. And that uh, leaves us then with something else here, and that's the ten horns. The scripture says those ten horns are on the head of the beast, and those are explained in verse number 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now I have to take you back 
You need to remember what we've said before. Horns are symbols of power. And when we discussed that in studying chapter 13, I said 10 may actually be a symbolic number. 10 sometimes is used as a representative of a large number. So it could actually be hundreds of nations that are in this coalition. But then there are some people who believe that, no, it's talking about the world is divided up into 10 zones. And there are 10 kings that control these 10 zones of the world. And the Antichrist sits on top of all of that. But whichever that is... We do know that the world's attention is turned to the Antichrist. So all the politics that divide us right now, all of that is done away with. And everybody has this one party ruling over them, and that is the kingdom of the beast. So there are ten kings that have not yet come to power. It's impossible for us to identify them. We have no idea who they are. But ten kings will come to power. And when Jesus comes again, the Antichrist and those ten kings will stand out when the tribulation starts. Now, fourthly then, and we'll finish with this, this alliance is like-minded in purpose. Verse 12, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, that means they're also going to reign for a very short time. Verse 13, These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb. Now, in the next message, we're going to discuss how that God directs all this show, uh, the entire show. But for the time being, Satan, the demons, the kings, the false prophet, the antichrist, that whole bunch thinks that they are in power, that this is all their idea. Now, Satan is angry because he was cast down to the earth. And if it's possible for him to become angrier because of that diminished status that he had in God's kingdom... And there again, we go back and we think about why, what, what was the cause that precipitated Satan's fall in the very beginning. And it very well could be that when God elevated man and, redempt, and, and made man that, and showed that he had a plan for man, that Satan was no longer top dog. I mean, he was the chief angel, of, and he's no longer top dog. And so he rebelled against God, and God cast him out. And in the tribulation period, he's actually cast down to the earth. So he no longer has the power to flirt through the heavens and go wherever he wants to and even to appear in heaven itself. He no longer will have that power. So Satan is very angry about all of this. And perhaps the kings don't realize it. And maybe in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist doesn't realize this. But they have been put into a fight. They're drawn into a fight that they cannot win. Now they think that they can. Their purpose is these ten kings and the Antichrist, they're they're men and they're thinking we are going to rule the world forever. But let's suppose for just a minute that Satan did actually win the war. What would happen to the Antichrist and those ten kings then? People don't mean anything to Satan. For centuries, Satan has tempted people. He has actually increased their suffering in hell because of all their sins. Now, he doesn't have the power to do that, but God does because of their sin. And so Satan has just used people all along to further his purposes. And so if he could actually win, do you think that he's going to let these puny men control the world? There's no such thing as utopia with Satan. Now, the Bible teaches us that as children of God, God has made us a promise that when he comes... We're going to live in his kingdom. We're going to be able to rule and reign with him. Satan makes no promises like that. Well, he may promise it, but it's never going to happen. 
Satan has no intentions of elevating any man to have control of his kingdom. So when you join up with Satan, the only thing that you're ever going to get is misery. Always, only, misery. And that's true whether he could win against God or not. But he can't. That's useless speculation, you might say. So they all have this hopeless purpose in mind. They are like-minded, but they are all alike condemned. Now, we just need to thank God that if you are a child of God, you, you thank him for this, that he chose you. Thank him that he gave you salvation. You're not going to have to go through any of this. If your name has been written down before the foundation of the world... None of the things that we talk about tonight are going to bother you at all because you're going to be one who comes back with Christ and rules and reigns with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time we've spent together in your word. And, and though we make a feeble presentation of it, we just ask, Lord, that the word would be used, that there would be greater understanding. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us as your people, that we would tell others about Christ. We'd tell them about what is going to happen, and we just pray the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and call them to repentance and faith, that they would trust Jesus as Savior. Lord, bless your people tonight. We thank you for their attention and for those who are interested in your word, who come out to hear your word preached and to worship you. And we give you the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.